puppet masters almost surely have a plan There's clearly maybe something there beyond the realm of man Until we've thoroughly tested every last close-chested view Find the more you think you know, the less you really do How's it going, Ironside Chatters? How we feeling? I gotta ask, because it's hard to beat back the oily appendages of the nefarious few with a cloudy mind, a stuffy nose, and all the fun stuff that comes with living in the poisonous environment the Capstone Cabal has worked so hard to make for us. Glyphosate-soaked produce, chemtrail-filled skies, hormone-injected meat, fluoride-tainted water, and petrochemicals as medicine. It would be hard to do a better job at the covert contamination of the entire system, while most people aren't aware it's going on at all. How convenient. But luckily, we know better, people, and there are many tips and tricks to showing up your suit of armor we know as the gut microbiome. It's hard to say if medical science just missed it, or if, like so many other times, we've just been given an incorrect assessment to keep us from the truth. But just over the last few years, information about the importance of the gut to our health and immune systems has really permeated independent health communities. And one of these champions of the new healthy gut movement is my main man, John Brisson. John runs the website and wrote the book Fix Your Gut. And when he was here just about a month ago, he opened up about the medical tragedies in his own life that fueled him to learn anything and everything about true health and repairing the damage the system has done, and went deep into some political think tanks, publishers, and unsavory conspiratorial connections in the more private plus show. Today we're going to expand on both of those topics because we left more than enough meat on the bones, and judging by the overwhelmingly positive feedback I got from our last show, I'm sure we're all psyched to have him back. Take a listen to the stuff you've been missing, the gut guru himself, the great John Brisson. Welcome back to the higher side, my man. Great intro as always, Greg. Thank you for having me back. Absolutely. So glad to have you here. And I got to say, I've done plenty of health shows at this point. I've gotten a lot of recommendations for vitamin C or magnesium or iodine. And it's always just a, yeah, I should pick some of that stuff up sort of thing. And then I never really do. I can be lazy like that can't find the right brand or whatever. But after our last show, you followed up with me, gave me a survey about my actual allergy problem and diet, made it super simple. Like, here are the exact links to what you need to buy, vitamin C powder, magnesium, malate, and omega-3 mainly. Replace your regular milk with A2 milk. Replace your regular bread with sprouted bread. So I did just those things. Not even 100%, to be honest. But I remember about five days a week to take the supplements and my allergies and sinus issues are like 70 to 80 percent gone man I mean it's been a few weeks like they're pretty much gone it's been amazing and I really owe you a ton of gratitude because you legitimately did change my damn life man well thank you Greg I mean (laughs) I appreciate it like I told you before I don't expect anybody to stick to a protocol 100 percent you know we're all human beings you have to enjoy life too you can't yeah do a strong regimen 100% of the time. But I'm glad that you were able to get the relief through the supplement recommendations that I had given you, as well as the dietary recommendations too. And it seems that if we just 
allow your body to handle histamine better and take magnesium to help improve a whole host of things from heart health to brain health to reduce cortisol levels, which is a stress hormone. Look how much healthier you got just for doing those simple things, giving your body what it needed to correct itself. Right. And that's basically the science behind all these cancer cures we've heard about. Like there are many different things over the years that have been suppressed where until they were suppressed, somebody might have developed something and had a line around the block. And we hear these stories, they were just curing all kinds of cancers and diseases. It's basically just all these different ways of getting the immune system up to where it does its natural function. It's just crazy how they've got it pinned down. And really, there are all these different factors that can improve it are just kind of off people's radar. And I guess we could tell a little bit of a funny story here because I actually bought some vitamin C powder after the Clive DeCarl show, but it just didn't mix well into liquid. So I stopped using it and then started again after you gave me your recommendation. And you had said to take two to 4,000 milligrams in the morning. Well, I was looking at the stuff I had and I read the wrong line because I saw 350 milligrams, which is actually the added calcium that was in it. So the second most prevalent ingredient. <laughs> but I did the math and I thought, damn, I'm going to have to have like six or seven scoops to actually get up to the two to 4,000 range. And I did that and it was super hard to choke down with all that powder in that liquid. And it ended up being like 13,000 milligrams of vitamin C. And I can say that for the next two days, the question of where is the nearest bathroom definitely factored in to every decision I made. So you got to be careful with your dosage, people. Yeah, vitamin C is an osmotic laxative. So is magnesium, meaning it draws water into the intestinal tract, which of course can lead to diarrhea when you have an oversaturation of water in the stool. So when you did that, you pretty much did vitamin C loading, which I do recommend through the course of work, the famous Nobel Prize winning scientist Linus Pauling and his work on vitamin C, discovering that vitamin C works very well against colds and flu and works also very well against cancer too, the IV form of it. But yeah, you took too much and lo and behold, you're, <laughs> you're, you did the vitamin C flush that most people do when they get colds. You know, you take about, about 10 to 15 grams of vitamin C. You start out with about five grams of vitamin C per every 20 to 30 minutes until you get the diarrhea. So you have to go use the bathroom real quick. And that's usually your body's set limit of how much vitamin C that works cellularly and easily dumps the rest of it into your bowels. So most people will do that when they're suffering from colds and notice that they help recover from their colds fairly quickly or helps keep them from coming down from the cold itself because vitamin C helps stimulate the immune system. Vitamin C2 as well might help inhibit certain viruses. So it's exactly what happened. You took too much vitamin C, you drew too much water into the bowels, and it gives you disaster pants. You know, you run off to the <laughs> bathroom and you'll be crapping yourself the whole day. <laughs> well, you know, live and learn. <laughs> but you were also telling me that it seems like from the free book offer on our last show, you've given away a couple hundred books to THC listeners. That's huge because that book, like I said, it's like, a Rolodex of conditions and protocols. And so if people take that advice, I mean, who knows how many people could exponentially be helped by that, man. Powerful stuff. Yeah, we've had about 400 to 500 free books the last time that I had looked at it about a week ago or so. Um, and I'm really glad that the book can get out there and help everybody. There's a whole bunch of people suffering from a wide assortment of digestive issues from just simple things like heartburn or gastritis, which is stomach burning, or even diarrhea or constipation, to people suffering from ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease and 
diverticulitis, people suffering from more advanced conditions. The Fix Your Gut book itself is more of a manual to give people simple protocols and dietary changes and help discuss the diseases too as well, that people would be able to hopefully help themselves with armed with that knowledge. Yeah, man. Well, it was a great thing to do. And I hope you're at least getting something back for it. I hope people are donating to you because it is your life's work. And I just hope you're getting compensated, man, because it's not easy stuff to pick through and find the truth about. Yeah, I am. And I did it because I do love the higher side community. I'm on the Discord group and the Facebook, and I just wanted to give back to the people so that they don't have to suffer. Well, great stuff, man. And let's also talk about some of the universal aspects of the protocol you gave to me. We need to take vitamin C and omega-3 and magnesium malate. But on the diet side, you had me switch to A2 milk. I was completely unfamiliar with this. But if we can't kick our love for dairy, talk to us about A2 milk as a better option. Yeah, usually you have A1 and A2 beta casein, which caseins are proteins or phosphoproteins that are found in dairy products. So originally cows produced A2 beta casein. From there, through mutation, we ended up with cows that produced A1 beta casein, A2 beta casein, and A3 beta casein. And it seems that A1 itself seems to be the most reactive. And what happened, or the main mutation of the difference in the the beta casein, was the position 67 of the chain, proline was changed with histidine, which is a weaker bond. So when you ingest dairy products like milk that has a lot of this casein protein in it, and you're ingesting A1 beta casein, it kind of breaks down the gut to this opioid peptide, this opioid molecule called beta caseomorphin 7. And beta caseomorphin 7 on its own, if you didn't have leaky gut, you know, you had a good working gut junction that's able to keep stuff like beta caseomorphin 7 out of your bloodstream. And it just, you ingest these dairy products with it. It's this A1 milk. Most people should relatively be somewhat okay. I think most people should consume A2 milk just because of that aspect of the beta caseomorphin 7. But that being said, I still occasionally, if you drink a regular glass of milk or eat some regular cheese, it's just basically fine. But people with gut issues with leaky gut, or what about children with undeveloped gut barriers? There has been a link between reducing the amount of A1 beta casein in children with autism and a little bit of reduction of their symptoms and improvement of their gastrointestinal symptoms. There's certain instances where if you have a weakened immune system, you have leaky gut, you don't want to give your child or infant A1 milk because of these caseomorphin 7, this opioid peptide, it can cross through the weakened gut barrier and get into the bloodstream and start causing inflammation outside of the digestive tract has been linked to possibly triggering heart disease or heart inflammation of the vascular system, as well as being an opioid peptide. It may actually have some sort of effect of itself on the brain. We don't know what the effects are 100%. Would you know that other foods that are opioid peptides, for example, like wheat has gluten. Spinach actually has robuscolin, which is an opioid peptide. Oats have avenin. So there's all these different opioid peptides. And for some people, they know that when they ingest these certain foods, when they have leaky gut, it can start causing brain fog or issues remembering things or migraines. It can start to trigger a lot of information within the brain and around the brain from these opioid peptides. It can also cause us to crave certain foods as well because our body comes used to the opioid peptides too, similar almost to standard opioid drug in a lot of ways. Mm. So... That's the difference between the A2 and the A1 is the A2 doesn't break down. The proline bond at position 67, 
the chain is stronger than the histidine bond that's in A1 beta casein. So when a A1 beta casein breaks down, it forms this opiopeptoid beta caseomorphin 7. And that's what causes all these issues with the consumption of dairy. Now, a lot of American cows produce A1 beta casein. A lot of your European cows, maybe possibly some of your Australian cattle in New Zealand, most of them would produce A2. And that might also explain one thing that we could talk about later, hopefully, if we have time to cover glyphosate, is there is a French paradox or a European paradox in some regard that French people, for example, have some of the lowest rates of cardiovascular disease and celiac disease in the known world. There's a lot of factors that are in play with that and glyphosate when we talk about that. But it could be they eat a lot of bread, which has a lot of gluten. They eat a lot of dairy, a lot of cheese, which would have a lot of casein and a lot of wine. So you'd think they'd have the worst guts in the world, mm-hmm. you know, because they're eating a lot of these foods that a lot of people in America, for example, react negatively to. But they don't. The food that they're ingesting, whether it's the wheat, the wine, or the dairy, is a lot healthier. It's more natural. So their dairy is more than likely a two, and that's why they would not react negatively to consuming cheese in the diet. That's so interesting because it really is the kind of stuff we're told to avoid, alcohol, bread, and dairy, and bread and cheese. It's just kind of funny, but it's clearly that they're just eating better versions of that stuff, which kind of brings me to the next point, which is the sprouted bread. Well, first, I guess I should say with A2 milk, the way I found it is just to find a brand online called A2, and then you can get it from there. Yes. But in terms of the sprouted bread, I have found two brands, Ezekiel Bread and Dave's Good Bread. I prefer Dave's because he was in prison and turned his life around to become the healthy bread producer he is today. Uh, And who doesn't deserve a second chance? But tell us about the uh, importance of making this change, too, that sprouted bread can be an improvement in terms of stuff in our own home. Because it's easier to replace something with a better version of itself rather than eliminate something when we formed a possibly bad habit. Yeah, with the milk real quick, I want to touch back on A2 milk, Greg, since you had mentioned it. I am a fan of it if it's the only thing that you can find, but it is pasteurized at a very high temperature, so it's not optimal. If you could find an A2 locally produced milk, which may be difficult depending on where you live. For example, me living in Fayetteville, North Carolina, it's going to be next nigh impossible for me to find that, so I have to rely on A2 milk. Mm -hmm. But if you can find a local A2 milk that's pasture-raised, non-homogeneized, fat pasteurized or raw, if you can handle it, would probably be best. Now for the sprouted bread, there's a lot of benefits of that. I don't necessarily recommend the Ezekiel, like I'd mentioned to you in the email, because it contains soy. Mm-hmm. And granted, the soy is sprouted and it is non-GMO, but to me, I'd like to reduce my consumption of soy as much as possible. I mean, I do use a little bit of fermented organic tamari, which is soy sauce for time to time, just because I love the taste of it. The coconut aminos just really don't match as well as the soy. But at least for the bread, the reason why you want to eat sprouted grains when always possible is because grains contain phytic acid. Phytic acid does have a purpose in plants. It allows them to maintain the hold of their minerals, so that, you know, make them less bioavailable. It's kind of like a way of storage mechanism. So a lot of these nutrients that are found in grains, they're bonded to phytic acid. And the human gut really doesn't have a good ability to break down phytic acid very well. Maybe some certain strains of bacteria, you know, if your gut's healthy enough, you may be able to break down a little bit more of the phytic acid than others. But for most people, let's be honest, we don't have great guts. 
So the reason why you want to sprout the grain is because it reduces the phytic acid component of it. It makes pretty much the more minerals that are in the bread, it makes it more bioavailable. You'd be able to digest it better as well. And we also know too from studies that sprouting also can help break down a little bit of the gluten protein, which a lot of people who have problem with wheat find a difficult digesting gluten. But the studies that we have of that is you would have to make the bread yourself and you'd have to soak it for a good 30 days or so and make a sourdough mixture. So it may reduce the gluten if you get Dave's bread, for example, the amount of gluten in it would probably be minuscule uh, reduction from the sprouting itself. But if you are going to eat gluten, if you're going to eat bread, it's best to eat organic, sprouted, unenriched, means there's no iron added to it, there's no folic acid added to it, type bread. If you want to get the healthiest bread that you could buy on the market, Dave's is probably one of the better ones. The sprouted Dave's one that I recommend you, the white bread. Now, if you could get a bread from a local bakery, we use organic einkorn wheat that's unfortified, that's fermented for 30 days to make sourdough. That's probably the healthiest bread if anybody can consume. And that's a million dollar question of what causes celiac disease. And I know one thing I do want to talk about is glyphosate is people have been ingesting bread, gluten, for thousands of years Yeah, since pretty much the invention of agriculture. So... Why all of a sudden do we have these massive rates of celiac disease? I mean, I'm sure genetically through mutations of HLA, DQA2, celiac disease has happened in the general population in very low amounts. But it seems to be a huge increase in the industrialized world over the past couple of years. And some people say like autism, it's better diagnostic methods, but I just don't see that, Greg. When you look at the rates of increase, it's exploded. It's exponential. And it also correlates with the amount of glyphosate that's been sprayed on wheat <laughs> in the United States. So when you look at the cause of celiac disease, you got to look at glyphosate exposure to the wheat itself and glyphosate ingestion in combination with an iron enrichment of wheat products and the agricultural industrial complex growing wheat shorter to get better yields, which have higher amounts of gluten. And that's really what's causing these people to have celiac disease, plus from other things of having leaky gut and everything like that, is all these modern conveniences that the agricultural industrial complex has to grow large amounts of wheat, but at the same time, it's poisoning us. Right. Well said. And it is just one of those things. Like Anybody can get vitamin C powder, omega-3, and magnesium malate supplements and change their bread and milk to just these better versions. And I don't know if everybody's got allergies like me, but it, that alone can do a lot of wonders. And I've actually felt it, which is kind of unique because, you know, we talk about a lot of different ways to live and a lot of advice is given on this show. And sometimes it's just food for thought. But to apply this and have it work, I just think it's awesome, man. It really has been great. And I don't want this to be all about me. I'm hoping most of this advice is applicable to the wider audience, but you did fix my allergies. And we were also talking about how I'm deaf in my right ear, have been since I was three. And to me, this seems like something that can't be fixed. I'm just broken now. However, you think there are some things worth trying. And you mentioned having a confirmation that some people have regained sight with certain technologies. What are we talking about here? Talk to us about the approach you would take to restore lost hearing or sight? What should we be looking into? 
It ranges from stem cells, which I know is controversial, but I do think that stem cell application does have a purpose when done correctly. The stem cells got from cord blood. I think it definitely could, if used correctly, like everything else. The controllers generally are going to use, you've heard of CRISPR as far as editing genes. I'm pretty sure they're not going to use it in our favor. (laughs) Right, right. So, of course, there's stem cell treatment, which I know a lot of it's going on in Mexico with great results. I know Joe Rogan's talked about it. We got that, but we also have, as far as your hearing is concerned, as long as the nerve isn't permanently damaged, let's just say that the mitochondria are just not functioning properly within our ear. I wonder if we can increase mitochondrial efficiency and maybe improve the nerve function within your ear. I almost wonder if your ear would functioning better. I mean, it would take a lot of work. It'd take more than what we just did for allergies. You would have to make sure that you're getting proper sunlight, which most people need to do for vitamin D as well as to help improve mitochondrial output. You'd have to take maybe certain supplements like ubiquinol and PQQ to see if we can increase mitochondrial biogenesis, see if we can create new mitochondria within the ear have to use red light laser therapy or also red light LED therapy too to see if we can also increase mitochondrial biogenesis and help with the mitochondria of the ear for them to function properly too as well. It's very experimental techniques, Greg. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd love to try it to see if we can get it to work. Yeah. There's very little drawback to it. I don't see where it would harm you in any fashion. But I think for a lot of people who are having issues with hearing or with vision, looking into stem cell therapy and looking into increasing mitochondrial therapy, there's a possibility that if it's not permanently damaged, and then also an argument is anything truly ever permanently damaged. (laughs) There's just so much that we don't know about how the human body works. But I think if you can increase nerve conduction, if you increase mitochondrial health and mitochondrial biogenesis from a cellular level, the functioning of the ear itself, I almost wonder if it can renew itself. And that's something that I might try once we can get your allergies hopefully completely gone, once we try to regain your hearing. I've always told you it's experimental, but it's definitely something that I think might be worth trying. Oh, yeah. And if we can do it, then it'd be very interesting. Well, that'd be proof. I mean, that's the kind of confirmation. I almost think sometimes in the back of my head, I feel that I'm almost lucky to be deaf in one ear because I feel like I live within a time window in which I will be able to play guinea pig. Whereas if I was in perfect shape, It would be hard to do this protocol that you suggested, which is better for everyone's health, but it would be hard to feel any kind of real result without the allergies. So it's a blessing and a curse, and I'm fine without hearing in my right ear, but it would be interesting to turn that tide, even if there's only a small percent chance. But I like the idea of it, and for people who might want to hear more about the stem cell research and work that's going on, I think the guy's name was Dr. Neil... Ryerden? Yes. Royerden? Yes, that's his name. And yes. uh, if you have a hard time spelling or pronouncing that name, if you just search Joe Rogan Experience, Mel Gibson, because Mel Gibson believes in this doctor so much that he was on that interview as well. That's right, he was. <laughs> Actually, I've had quite a few of my clients go down there and do it with very, very good results. Interesting. So yeah, I think it's definitely something as a last resort for most people, if they can't fix themselves, is something definitely worth trying with, I would assume, very minimal risk, if any at all. And you also mentioned Royal Raymond Wright and laser therapy. I was writing feverishly as you were uh, telling me about things, but is that something in this realm as well? Yeah, the low light laser therapy. Wright therapy is something that we can possibly try to as well. Royal Raymond Reif was a brilliant man. He was sidelined like Tesla was sidelined. I know Tracy Tryman was talking about in the last THC 
the rivalry between Edison and Tesla being like lore manufactured to an extent. Yes. I don't agree with her that at all because Tesla died penniless and his work was never brought out completely to the masses the way it could be used properly to transform our life. For example, wireless technology, the way we have it today is a bastardization of what Tesla envisioned of healing frequencies going off the Schumann resonance compared to what we have now, which you've had people talk about 5G possibly unzipping DNA and stuff like that. It's not always the case that you should judge someone if they failed, whether or not their work is true. But you can maybe judge how well the cabal tries to smash someone into oblivion, whether or not their works may have been true or not. And that's how I look at Tesla. I think if Tesla was in on it, he would have made out a lot better financially. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's the same with Royal Raymond Reif. I mean, Reif invented one of the best microscopes that was used at the time. He also expanded on Tesla's wavelength theory to develop a Rife machine that everything has certain wavelengths. You know, you can kill certain pathogens using certain wavelengths without harming the body. You can grow certain cells by turning into that wavelength. So a lot of people use Rife therapy to treat Lyme disease, to reduce Borrelia, or they use Rife technology to treat cancer. It's kind of taboo, the use of it. And I've known people that it's helped greatly. And I've also known people, like everything, where it didn't make any difference. But I think using Rife technology of maybe honing into the mitochondria of the ears and the nerve cells of the ears as well, of trying to get them to do a little bit of regrowthing by using certain wavelengths, I think it may be beneficial. Yeah, man. It's just so interesting. I'm with you in terms of uh, you know looking at people who have been suppressed. I feel like it's pretty easy to kind of see a certain template, as you described, of the people's work not penetrating the culture getting smashed by the FDA or the medical association and then dying penniless or sometimes being put in jail or sometimes being exiled out of the United States. It's a pattern that repeats. The patent system is also involved in keeping a lid on a lot of technologies. So for the most part, that template is what it looks like on the surface. I would agree. And, uh, you know, let's get weird a minute because I don't think I got into this last time. But you initially used the phrase, how the Archon-controlled elite modify our gut microbiome in our correspondence. And you could be peppering that up to just appeal to my conspiratorial nature. But do you consider this an attack on a populace that it really could be a campaign that filters down from a cosmic or spiritual level? Very much so. Even if we look at it strictly from a government standpoint, let's say the world order standpoint, What is one of the main ways you make somebody ill? You mess with their gut microbiome and how you keep them in control. I mean, last time we talked about toxoplasmosis gondii and schizophrenia and rage disorder. You toxoplasma gondii may be implicated in those diseases. A lot of people getting anxiety and stuff like that. So when you look at how many guests that you've had on who talked about chemtrails, the barium that's left behind and weather modification, how toxic our environment is and the use of glyphosate on crops, which we know glyphosate has antibacterial properties and it greatly affects, for example, the bifidobacterium in our gut, which makes up a good amount of our probiotic microbiome. So when you look at all these mechanisms, the fluoride in the water, I mean, everything that we come in contact, it affects us on genetic level, affects us on a gut level. I mean, it can even affect us on a spiritual level. Like we talked about last time, a lot of the bacteria in our gut, they produce a lot of the neurotransmitters from serotonin to melatonin to dopamine. So it would seem to me that if you're going to have a control system, even from an esoteric standpoint, you would have to control the whole entire aspect of the being. 
So why would you only attack the human itself? Why would you not attack any organism that has a symbiotic relationship with humans? So the gut microbiome in a healthy person lives symbiotic with the human. It's supposed to help you. It's supposed to help you digest your food. It's supposed to help produce certain nutrients like vitamin K2 and vitamin B12. It's supposed to help us break down with the biggest importance of life, and that's what we eat for subsidence and for pleasure too. So you can control that by doing all this geoengineering and food engineering and genetically modified and pesticides to make us more sick, to make us more trapped and hopeless and disease. And when it comes down to it, everything in our life is controlled. I mean, you've had many guests, you yourself have talked about it a lot, Greg. And I don't want to sound alarmist and say, well, there's a depopulation agenda because you see a lot of people talk about that. But I have to say, if there's not, then why fill our, our air with poisons and our water with poisons and our food to make it poisonous, you know, even make it poisonous on a biological level by inserting BT toxin in the corn and stuff like that. Why poison us all from the inside out? There has to be some part of this archonic grand design to keep us dumbed down and keep us in line. It's truly sad in the way it is, but that's what I want to try to give people hope is, is to spread wisdom. Mm-hmm. through my work is you can't control everything. We live in a toxic world. I mean, when you get in your car, there's God knows how many toxins you're exposed to just from the plasticizers in the vehicle. So we're all in this toxic environment. And some people can argue that maybe it's always been toxic to some degree. I mean, the Greeks were exposed to a lot of lead and mercury. So maybe we just changed our poisons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or they still did use thermosil and mercury injections for a long time you know, for vaccinations. So maybe not. But I'm not saying unless you're super ill, you should change everything about your life. And even then, you still have to enjoy your life. I eat Chipotle every now and then. Sometimes I eat a gluten-free hamburger. I'll eat a chocolate bar, eat some sugar. I mean, I'm human. You know, no one's perfect. But that's the thing is, is about trying to make these changes in your life with wisdom and knowledge that you gain so that you can fight against the system and that you can spread awareness to other people and try to make us feel better because that's what this grand design wants us to be. It wants us to lose our spirituality. It wants us to be able to lose our mental cognition and focus so that we just become autonomous drones. Mm-hmm. And it's happening, <laughs> sadly, but it's it's definitely happening. It is, man. I mean, you can see it almost no matter what field you look at. If you examine the top corporations and what they're doing, they're injecting poisons into the culture and almost across the board, is nefarious intent as far as I can see, whether it's food, medicine, media, oil companies, like you can't trust them. Electronics companies, like if these phones are giving us cancer, then Samsung and and Apple are just as guilty as anyone, you know, in in terms of poisoning our environment. So you really have a hard time looking for a field that doesn't have some corporations at the top that are either poisoning us directly with their products or with their waste stream It is ridiculous that we allow these structures to exist. Like clearly they have to be broken up because this is the end result of these structures. And, you know, so people really, really love that last show we did. I got a lot of great feedback asking for, I guess their criticism was maybe more specifics in the diet area. This guy, Zach, I know is really adamant about this, but we talked about better milk and better bread. We talked about some of the best supplements. But what are some of the best gut-fixing foods that can be universally recommended? Maybe some specific fruits and vegetables that have the greatest impact. 
Well, you always want to eat a diverse diet if all possible locally. That's within season. It's organic, of course, if possible. So you want to try to go to your local farmer's market, talk to the farmers, look how they're growing their food. Because a lot of vegetables have things that are microbiome-like. They have a lot of different polysaccharides and things that the bacteria and yeast feed off of, you know, inulin and onions, for example, and polyphenols too that are in fruits and vegetables. You've got microbiome likes all this. So if I had to stick with a diet that would work universally, and I've never actually written one for Fix Your Gut because it's, it's different, but if I had to choose one, I think would universally fit. There's a diet by Paul Jaminet called the Perfect Health Diet. I love the diet itself. I don't necessarily agree with the name because I don't think any diet is perfect for anyone. But, you know, eating local, organic if possible, avoid the dirty dozen if you can't find organic. In-season fruits and vegetables that are grown locally would probably be the best way to start. Eating some grass-fed meat, pasture-raised meat, organic if all possible. Getting good healthy fats, which are also good for the microbiome and for digestion, you know, like organic extra virgin coconut oil extra virgin olive oil, grass-fed butter, grass-fed ghee, eating eggs. Pretty much human beings were designed to be, and I know I can get some flack from this depending on if someone's a vegan or if someone's a straight carnivore. Human beings were designed, in my guess, to be omnivore-type animals. We're supposed to eat limited amount of meat, not just meat by itself. Hmm. Perfect Health Diet says about half a pound to a pound of meat a day and about two pounds to three pounds of vegetables and fruit a day. It's probably about right for most people. So when it comes to those fruits and vegetables, like is there more to say about apples over oranges or like onions over broccoli? That's a good question, Greg. You want to stick to more of your low fructose fruits, if all possible, that are in season. So you want to stick to your berries, your melons like cantaloupe, honeydew. You want to stick to lemons and limes, your citrus fruits, grapefruit, mangoes. If you can find mangoes locally, I know they're a tropical fruit, but if you can't, eating them within season at least. If you just Google local and season food, there's a website that'll have your local food that you can hopefully find at a farmer's market. For the question of what foods are better for the gut, it really depends on the person. For example, we'll take you for example, Greg, being histamine intolerant. You probably want to avoid fruits or vegetables that can liberate histamine. So you want to avoid citrus fruits. You want to avoid grapefruit. You want to avoid strawberries, you would want to avoid avocados, which have histamine, and you want to stick more towards broccoli and cauliflower and Brussels sprouts, carrots, parsnips, forest fruits, blueberries, cranberry. It really just depends on the person mm -hmm. and their digestion. But I guess a simple thing is, is for vegetables, whatever you can find locally grown the organic and seasoned, they're all pretty much good for you. Now, I will say that I prefer cooking vegetables over most raw vegetables because most raw vegetables have a lot of anti-nutrients. I know there's a lot of people that are on the raw food bandwagon. And a person who has extremely healthy gut, eating raw food probably is not going to cause any issue. But most of us don't have healthy guts. So we kind of need to steam our broccoli to reduce its goitrogenic effect or its negative effect on the thyroid gland or steam it to reduce the phytic acid component of a lot of these vegetables or the oxalate component of them. So yeah, you want to make sure that you steam or lightly saute a lot of the vegetables that you ingest. You don't want to ingest them raw if you're having gut issues. And for most people, they should stick to cooking their vegetables, not charring them, obviously, but steaming them enough till they're cooked to help break down a lot of the anti-nutrients. There's a really good book called The Plant Paradox 
always talks about the issues with plants, whether it be lectins or phytic acid or phytates or oxalates, these things that the plants had developed as defense mechanisms against predators that aren't necessarily good for us to ingest in large amounts, depending on our health issues. You know, vegans will say, well, as long as it comes from the ground and it's a plant, it's a good thing. That's not necessarily true, just as much as carnivores will say, eat meat, meat, nothing but meat. That's <laughs> not necessarily true either. You kind of kind of balance it depending on the person. But I mean, that's what makes up the best thing with microbiome is you want to keep it happy, a well-diverse fruits and vegetables that are within season and eat as much vegetables pretty much as you can. I mean, that's what your microbiome likes the most is vegetables, a little bit of carbohydrates like sweet potatoes, a little bit of rice, low fructose fruit that I mentioned. Sometimes fermented foods can be beneficial too as well, depending on the person. You having histamine issue, you got to avoid most of them because most of them have high amounts of histamine like kombucha or kefir or yogurt. But someone like me who had low histamine, I felt very good on some of those. So it depends on the person. For example, sour cream, I feel perfectly fine on it. It actually makes me feel good. It actually improves my digestion. So eating a lot of these probiotic foods and prebiotic foods, like I mentioned, like onions for inulin, if you can tolerate the sulfur, broccoli for the inulin, you know, have a lot of these prebiotics or prebiotics are things that feed the gut microbiome. Seeing resistant starch from time to time, like leftover cooked fried rice, all that can use to feed the gut. It's all in moderation, Greg. It's mm -hmm. all in moderation and it all depends on tolerance. I've known people who've eaten too much resistant starch. They've got on the potato diet where you eat a lot of resistant starch, just eating nothing but potatoes, trying to reset their microbiome and their metabolism. Are people thinking, oh, I read about resistant starch online. I'm going to start eating potato starches and eating gluten-free bread with a lot of resistant starches. And then they start doing that. They don't know they have a Klebsiella overgrowth. And then lo and behold, they start developing reactive arthritis, hmm. trying to help themselves. There's a lot of pitfalls. You have to make sure that you definitely read up before you try to change your gut microbiome in very strong ways, like taking a large amount of resistant starch or a large amount of prebiotics, like supplemental inulin. But if you try to modulate it through your diet, you know, just making sure that you're eating more vegetables, you're staying away from fast food as much, you're eating low fructose fruits like berries and melons. For most people, that's probably going to help their gut out. You know, eating probiotic foods from time to time, like sauerkraut, drinking a little bit of low sugar coconut kefir, it'll help you. Even drinking the occasional glass of wine, maybe a good clean biodynamic wine can actually be very beneficial for the microbiomes. They love the polyphenols that are found in wine. They also love resveratrol, which is found in wine. So yeah, as far as helping their digestion, eat organic whenever possible. If it's fried, you probably don't want to eat a whole bunch of it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> eat some meat, try to get grass-fed as possible. Seafood, omega-3s are also important. Omega-3s feed acromantia, which is one of the biggest probiotic bacteria in the gut. Usually people with acid reflux have lower amounts of acromantia because acromantia help maintain the mucosal barrier in the esophagus to help prevent against reflux. So you have to make sure that your diet's like the perfect health diet by Paul Jaminet, pretty much an omnivore diet that stresses heavily on very healthy fruits and vegetables. Fair enough. I think those are great details. And on the subject of resetting things, how important is pH balance? I've seen some negative press lately about this alkaline water trend, but you never really know what you can trust. What are your thoughts on pH balance and making that a focus of ours? Ooh. <laughs> well, I look at it differently than a lot of people in the natural health perspective look at pH. You know, a lot of people say that you need to alkaline your body, you need to alkalize your diet. I think that's somewhat impossible. The pH of the blood stays very closely regulated. 
And the urinary pH itself is what a person changes when they eat more acidic or more alkaline food. So when they're measuring their alkalinity on a urinary strip, they're changing their urine pH. They're not really changing their blood pH. I know they claim that cancer cannot survive in an alkaline body. And right. though that may be true, there's many different causes of cancer. And one of them might be dysbiosis of whether bacterial in origin, like stomach cancer being caused by H. pylori or a fungal in origin. So if you have a yeast overgrowth, yeast dysbiosis, and you alkalize your urine in your body, in theory, yes, it would reduce the fungal overgrowth or dysbiosis and cause your cancer to possibly go into remission. That being said, it can't really be done in the blood <laughs> because if it did, that's what the main conditions of metabolic acidosis and metabolic alkalinosis are. They're major conditions if that blood pH slightly goes off and becomes acidic or slightly becomes more alkaline. So when you talk about alkaline water, I used to recommend it for people with silent reflux because pepsin is an enzyme that your stomach produces to help break down protein and help with stomach acid production. And people with silent reflux, they get the pepsin stuck in their throat. And when they eat something acidic, it activates the pepsin and it starts digesting the tissue. So I used to recommend drinking alkaline water as a way of kind of inactivating the pepsin. Mm -hmm. That's why it doesn't digest your duodenum because your pancreas releases sodium bicarbonate to neutralize stomach chyme. So the problem that I started looking at in is, is our stomachs are supposed to be acidic. They're supposed to be. I mean, they're supposed to have a pH of one or two during a meal, two to three in between meals. So when you're drinking these large amounts of alkaline water during a meal, you're buffering your stomach acid. You would not want to do that. There are certain parts of the body that are supposed to be acidic. That's one of my main problems about the whole alkalizing thing is, is there's certain parts of the body that are supposed to be more acidic and there's certain parts of the body that are supposed to be more basic. And the stomach is supposed to be extremely acidic because when it's not, you start getting overgrowth like H. pylori if you've been exposed to or if it's part of your microbiome. So when you're drinking these large amounts of alkaline water, if you were going to do it, one, you would do it in between a meal. You would never do it at a meal because you don't want to reduce stomach pH. Now, a lot of people say, well, I went on the alkaline diet and I got better. My health got better. Maybe some people will claim that it helped improve their fight against cancer. And I can see that because most of these people probably went from the standard American diet, Greg, to a healthier diet. <laughs> right, right. That'll do it. So of course they're going to get better in some degree. You can't alkalize the blood and you wouldn't want to. When they mention they'll drink lemon water. Yeah. And they'll say that alkalizes the body. Well, in theory, my guess is probably what it's doing is, is you're drinking the lemon water, that citric acid has a very low pH of around 2.5. So it's very acidic. So you're drinking this lemon water. Most people have elevated stomach pH of probably three to four generally, sometimes even higher depending on the person, maybe around two to three if they're not taking care of themselves. So they're drinking this lemon water, they're acidifying their stomach, they're moving their bile, they're improving their digestion, and they go check their pH strips. And yeah, their pH strips is more alkaline because the pancreas has to produce more bicarbonate to neutralize the lemon. So of course, more bicarbonate's in the urine, which increases the urine pH, it makes it more basic. But a person probably feels better from eating these quote-unquote alkaline foods because a lot of them are acidic foods. Mm. <laughs> so they just improve digestion. So a person's digestion improves or microbiome improves, maybe any dysbiosis they have in the stomach reduces itself, the stomach microbiome becomes more normal, and lo and behold, they feel better. 
Now, did they really alkalize their body? No, they just <laughs> alkalized their urine. But they probably improved their digestion by ingesting a lot of these acidic, quote unquote, alkaline foods, you know, like citrus fruits, for example. And it probably improved their digestion overall, which improved their microbiome, which improved their health. So yeah, I, I wouldn't drink large amounts of Kagan water. I do drink a good mineral water from time to time that will have an elevated pH, but I don't drink the synthetic elevated pHs. Like you'll see water, I'll say like Essentia that's 9.5 because they added a whole bunch of minerals in there. Yeah, don't touch that stuff. That stuff's bad. It's heavily alkaline. It's artificially alkaline. If you get a good spring water that's got a good high pH from having a little bit extra magnesium, then yeah, occasionally drinking that may be very beneficial. But I wouldn't consume any of the artificial alkaline waters. I don't think they're really good for most people to ingest. I hope I explained the whole alkaline acid thing as I think that it's just pretty much bunk. You can't change the pH of the blood. It's very tightly controlled by the body. If it ever goes haywire, it's a major medical condition. It's either metabolic acidosis or metabolic alkalinosis. You're pretty much changing the urinary pH by doing this. And that could help some things. Sometimes making the urinary pH more basic, though, can lead to UTIs, urinary tract infections. Mm-hmm. And that's why a lot of people drink cranberry juice for two reasons. One, it seems to possibly acidify the urine, even though cranberry juice does have a very low pH, but I think it's probably because of the mannose sugar in it and also helps reduce E. coli biofilms in the urinary tract. So I don't think there's a lot of bunk when it comes to the acid alkaline diet myself. I know a lot of people in natural health disagree. And they say that you should avoid acid forming foods like meat. That's the thing is, is if you look at most of the acid and alkaline forming foods, most of the acidic foods are foods that people shouldn't be eating anyway, like your GMO canola oil and mm. GMO soybean oil and large amounts of soy and non-pastured meat. I think majority of people should stay away from those and probably eat more things that are on the alkaline list, like seafood and fruits and vegetables. That would make more people healthy, and I think that's why they're getting healthy from the diet. Hmm. I think that logic makes a lot of sense. It is kind of weird. Like We try to assess the cause and effect for things, and sometimes we're just looking at it wrong, but I think this is all great information for sure. And here's kind of a random vanity question for you. But a lot of people have noticed that you never see me without a hat on, and that is absolutely true. You will not. But what do you think about reversing hair loss? I mean, if we're talking about something like regaining sight and hearing, is there a protocol to get our hair back? I mean, I've been told testosterone and zinc are big factors, but this has to be, I don't know, maybe possible if we're talking about things that are more extreme. Has this been on your radar at all? I've seen your media headshots, man. (laughs) Yeah, well, I lost my hair not from DHT expression. I lost mine because of Accutane. I took Accutane as a child, and it permanently changed the collagen structure of how collagen is formatted through my body, and I've been trying to work to improve that. Huh. I could do the scalp massage and using red light LED therapy and stuff like that to regrow hair. I do know that there was one guy I worked with. His name was Rob. He has a website called Perfect Hair Health, and I definitely recommend anybody who's suffering from hair loss to look into Rob's work. I'm suffering, man. His website's perfecthairhealth.com. He's got a certain protocol. His diet recommendations are pretty solid. He also recommends scalp massaging, getting sunlight, vitamin D is crucial, fixing the gut. All those things can help improve hair growth. Taking zinc to properly make sure testosterone is formed, reduce DHT formation. So yeah, I definitely would go to his website, anybody who's listening, or you yourself too, Greg, perfecthairhealth.com. 
and definitely look at the research that he has done as far as regrowing health. He has had a lot of people through the scalp massage, not using shampoo, people actually regrowing their health, regrowing their hair, should I say, and improving their health. Cool, man. Good. I like that resource. And another big thing that got cut last time and you mentioned earlier was related to arthritis. I know we have some listeners who grew up in the Art Bell era, and I know some of our parents are dealing with this stuff also. I've tried to get my mom doing yoga with very little luck, but is there any advice you might have for aging people dealing with arthritis? Definitely supplement with magnesium, which will help reduce inflammation of the joints themselves. Try to clean up the diet like we'd mentioned before, maybe follow the perfect health diet and try to see if you can reduce inflammation that way. I have used supplementing with omega-3 fatty acids to reduce asthma-like symptoms and allergies, but most people with arthritis should have a diet that's rich in omega-3 fatty acids, you know, more of a Mediterranean-type diet, eating more seafood that's low in mercury, like sardines, flounder, cod, and salmon, staying away from high mercury, seafood, tuna, king mackerel. But yeah, getting more omega-3s in, getting more extra virgin olive oil, Changing the diet would have very, very strong effect on people with arthritis. Yoga is very important too, like you had mentioned. Getting sunlight, vitamin D production is crucial. Proper sunlight. There's a blog on Fix Your Gut I wrote about vitamin D and sun. So make sure that if anybody's suffering from arthritis, they should definitely look into that blog. There are certain anti-inflammatory herbs like turmeric and boswellia. Of course, most people have heard of the actual extract from turmeric, which is curcumin. That works very, very well as an anti-inflammatory. It works as a reversible COX-2 inhibitor, unlike most of your NSAID drugs and other derivatives from that. There are COX-2 inhibitors, which are reversible as curcumin is, meaning that it won't seem to have the side effects of Celebrex did back in the day or triggering heart attacks or strokes or causing kind of a paradoxical effect and reducing of inflammation. So yeah, I mean, I would definitely look into curcumin, boswellia, supplementing with magnesium to help reduce inflammation. Also, a lot of people are carrying around excess iron. Women have a reduced effect of that because they get their monthly periods. But men, the main ways that we get rid of our iron is a little bit through ejaculation. Hello. <laughs> a little bit through ejaculation, a little bit through our bowel movements and the rest that's used up by our body. So if you're carrying a toxic load of iron, a whole bunch of bonded iron can cause a lot of inflammation if you have a high ferritin level. So for men, it might be a good idea, and even women too, to donate blood every couple of months to kind of reduce our iron load, which hmm. may help with inflammation too. One last thing is, is rheumatoid arthritis, which is something I mentioned earlier, it has been linked strongly to a dysbiosis of bacteria that's found in humans called Klebsiella pneumoniae or Klebsiella okatasa, either one. It seems that the body reacts very negatively to the endotoxins that are produced by those bacteria, and it causes the autoimmune condition known as rheumatoid arthritis and alkalizing spondylitis. So people with rheumatoid arthritis would definitely want to research Klebsiella and effect of reducing resistant starch in their diet to see if that helps their rheumatoid arthritis. I've coached a lot of people with RA, and I've gotten a lot of people with RA into remission. Wow. Reducing the Klebsiella in their guts and just changing their diet. So yeah, arthritis is something for most people, it's mainly diet related. They change their diet, they get enough omega-3 fatty acids in, they get enough magnesium in, they're replacing what they're losing. Most people with regular arthritis, they fix their gut, no pun intended, they should improve. They fix their gut and get more minerals in and they should improve. That's so interesting, man. I mean, it's easy to see how something like allergies or sinus issues is related to, you know, the kind of things you take in like dairy, but... Arthritis is one of those things that I never really would have thought could be fixed all that much. And I just figured it was related 
to aging, you know, but it's pretty cool to know that it can be reversed. And there's some food for thought and some resources, some rabbit holes to go down to if you want to try to maybe help your own parents or if you are of that age where you're dealing with those kind of issues stemming from, I guess, long term dietary issues. And uh, another concern I have, it sort of comes from the world of UFC. And it's also something that comes up on your website. But fans of the sport would know that George St. Pierre has come down with ulcerative colitis. A few years ago, Brock Lesnar had diverticulitis. And we hear about these issues coming from a diet that has too much meat in it. And that is a concern for me because I eat a ton of meat, to be honest. So I worry, is meat itself really the cause of these issues when we get a bit older? Or is there advice you have for avoiding those conditions when we do have a meat-heavy diet? Or is that just something we're going to have to watch out for? I think it's actually propaganda that is caused by meat. Um, let me take that back. Ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease is caused by ruminant animal products. Genetic sensitivity to uh, mycobacterium avium paratuberculosis, which is mycobacterium that's found in cattle, that causes this condition known as Johan's disease, which mimics a lot of ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. So anybody who ingests dairy or eats ruminant animal meat, they get a certain amount of this mycobacterium avium paratuberculosis. Even in the healthiest of cattle, it can be found. It's rare, but it can still be found. So what's the difference, you may ask, between you, for example, or me? I eat butter, which would theoretically have a lot of MAP because it can't be killed through pasteurization. And I have no reactive to it whatsoever, and butter actually makes me feel pretty darn good. <laughs> Compared to someone who has ulcerative colitis, and they ingest butter, and lo and behold, they have a flare-up, and they start bleeding, having massive intestinal inflammation. It could be genetic-wise or a couple of genes that are associated with ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease of developing it, a weakness to MAP and the toxins that MAP produces. It could be whatever you get your infection of MAP. It seems if you get it younger in life, you develop ulcerative colitis. If you're older, you develop Crohn's disease. If you got exposed to MAP in large amounts as a kid, you may not develop any issues at all. It seems to be a lot of different reasons why someone with ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease would have a sensitivity to this mycobacterium. It seems ulcerative colitis, for example, the reactions to the mycobacterium only stay in the gut for the most part, in the colon. Where Crohn's disease, it seems to be whatever reaction a person has to the mycobacterium or the toxins that it produces, it can be systemic and it can affect the whole body. It seems to be the difference between the two diseases. Actually, I think it's caused both by the same bacteria. And there's tons of studies, Greg. I mean, there's been studies of it being caused by MAP that research has known since the early 1990s. Hmm. It's finally now, through the work of Dr. Harmon Taylor, they're finally actually starting, the mainstream medical community is actually starting to finally realize that MAP is the cause of these two conditions. Actually, Harmon Taylor is developing, as much as it pains me to say this, a vaccination. <laughs> if it's clean, I don't necessarily think you can prove that it works. I might not necessarily have a problem with it, but time will tell in that regard. Right. But for a person with ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease, in theory, you would have to give up ruminant animal, which a ruminant animal is an animal that has multiple stomachs that eats grass or chews cuds. So you'd have to avoid cows, cow products, goat products, camel products, sheep products, deer products. You'd have to avoid ingesting those. Now you can eat pork because pork are monogastric just like human beings. And you could ingest seafood and birds. Even though birds do get MAP, it seems that the species they get seem to be non-reactive from what we could tell. And I have actually coached many people with 
ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. Now, granted, not all of them I were able to get in remission, but a lot of them are was. For example, I have two personal friends of mine. One was Abel's former occupational therapist. He had ulcerative colitis, and I was able to get him in a remission. He was actually thinking about getting part of his colon removed because the mesalamine was not working. It was not stopping the bleeding and the inflammation. I got him on a protocol that I talk about a fixture gut, using certain herbs to reduce MAP, as well as getting him to completely give up room animal products. And he went in complete remission. He's been in remission now for about four years. Damn. And I actually have another good personal friend of mine. His son is a friend of my son. He has Crohn's disease. And following my protocol, he is in remission too. Hmm. So yes, it would seem that most people with Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis is not necessarily meat ingestion. It's just the type of meat that you're ingesting that have this mycobacterium in it. The cause of diverticulosis and diverticulitis, on the other hand, is simply put constipation. Hmm. And constipation is a first world condition. So yeah, a diet high in meat and low in fiber for some people could technically cause constipation. For others, there's some people who microbiome don't digest fiber very well, and a lot of fiber can constipate them. It's kind of the reverse. So most people with diverticulosis, what they need to do before it turns into diverticulitis is they need to do things to get their bowels running and take magnesium, get a squatty potty, make sure they're drinking enough water, making sure they're exercising, making sure that their diet is balanced depending on what makes them have a better bowel movement, whether it's more fruits and vegetables and fiber or if it's less fruits and vegetables and fiber, whatever their microbiome needs to make sure. The biggest important thing that they can do for diverticulosis it's just to improve the migrating motor complex or the mechanism of what moves the bowels along in the intestinal tract. There's still mixed research about them avoiding nuts and seeds, popcorn, because of the kernels that could inflame and cause diverticulitis. Hmm. I don't know. My grandfather had diverticulosis. <laughs> I have diverticulosis. It could be there's a genetic component to it. And I do know, for example, that when I used to eat popcorn and eat an occasional kernel, it would give me severe pain sometimes. Wow. And my grandpa noticed that when he eats sesame seeds, it also causes him to have a flare-up. So for people with diverticulosis, I would assume the most important thing they can do is just get their bowels moving, get more healthier bowel movements, make sure they're going once or twice a day, make sure they're good volume, they're dark brown. And you know, in doing those things, it could help prevent a diverticulitis attack. And I don't think it's sorely linked to just meat consumption. It's the same with ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. I think that's straight propaganda. Right on. Because everybody has a problem with it, and even I do, is you tell people, well, don't eat this. It's the worst thing for you in the world, and eat this. And how many times throughout history has that always been wrong? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to harp on vegans, but come on, there's been no vegan society. <laughs> <laughs> It's a modern invention, people, okay? And if you're doing it ethically because you don't want to harm animals, fine, I understand that. Our religious beliefs, but from a health standpoint, vegan tribal societies have not exist because human beings, for example, we cannot fully produce B12. We have to get it through our diet or at least get our microbiome to the point where maybe it can produce a little bit of it, which is not impossible. Hmm. But that's the thing is human beings are omnivores. That means if you had a vegetarian diet, or if you had a diet where you ate a little bit of meat, that would be more beneficial than either being a vegan or a strict omnivore or go on a strict ketogenic diet, which a lot of people do, because those have, from what we've seen, somewhat negative effects on the microbiome. It seems to be more in the middle you are, the more in season and local that you can eat, the more fresh the food. That seems to have a better effect on a person's health than it does swinging strictly to the vegan pendulum or swinging strictly to a strong ketogenic diet or 
almost a carnivore principle, like the family where they eat nothing but beef, organ, meats, and steak. Mm. And I will get a lot of flack for that, just like I'll get flack for vaccinations. Uh-huh. <laughs> of someone say, why don't you just pick a side? <laughs> but the data just doesn't show that, Greg. If you look strictly from a microbiome standpoint, people that go on ketogenic diets have a high amount of bacterioids. And who do I coach? Every gut test I've ever seen, the person has a lot of bacterioids and has very low firmicutes. Okay. And that's what a person with a strong ketogenic diet, a very no carb or very low carb ketogenic diet, that's what their gut shows is a lot of dysbiosis. It's the same with vegans. Vegans have an extremely, extremely high firmicute level and low bacterioids. So the gut's not in balance. It's about keeping this balance. I mean, there's a balance to everything. I'm not saying that veganism, if done 100% correctly, which you would need B12 supplementation and make sure you're getting enough amino acids, you'd have to be eating the right foods. Could it be done taking algae omegas? Yeah, it can be, but it's still optimal. Right. You know, and either is strict carnivorism. That's not optimal either. Right. Well, man, you just know so much. And I'm glad we got to talk about those issues because as someone who eats primarily meat, I wondered if that would be possibly in my future. But the thing about vegans, at least the ones that I know, that drives me a little nuts is that they, and I understand, if you're limited to things that are not made by animals, you're going to eat a lot of carbs, a lot of bread, and a lot of sugar. And that's what I see. I see a lot of my friends that are vegan going after pastries and going after that kind of stuff. And it's like, well, dude, I know that you're limited, but this is like worse than most of the stuff that you're eliminating from your diet. So I don't know, to each their own, do what you want. But it does seem a little odd to basically replace meat with sugar in a lot of cases. Yeah, I agree with you. I actually only knew one vegan ever who worked at the local health food store that did it right. Majority of the ones that I know, they don't. They eat a lot of enriched bread products and they eat a lot of sugar. Mm -hmm. It's like pick your poison. Mm -hmm. Do you want to eat nothing but factory farm meat from Cargill or do you want to eat a ton of enriched bread products and sugar? Both are bad. Right. Man, damned if you do, damned if you don't. And Last time, we also went pretty hard into how each of the psychedelics can affect our gut and the positive aspects of them. But you also seem to know a whole lot about the endocannabinoid system itself, the background of it. And really, they say that there are so many cannabinoids that we really only know the top few, maybe a couple dozen, maybe up to 100, I think, at this point. But there seems to be a whole lot of them, many more that we don't understand And I guess I'm curious if you do have anything more to say about these odd receptors we have for the marijuana plant. You summed it up right there. There There's so many different cannabinoid receptors. There's so many different cannabinoids, should I say. I mean, there's only two receptors that we know of in the endocannabinoid receptor, which are cannabinoid 1 and cannabinoid 2. Cannabinoid 1 is mainly found in the central nervous system, where cannabinoid 2 receptors are mainly found in the immune system. But there are so many cannabinoids that affect these receptors that it's almost unknown the positive or negatives of each one and an activation of each system. I know you had Rick Simpson on, and I'm a huge fan of Rick Simpson mm-hmm. oil because of THC that's in it in itself and the anamide and everything else, other cannabinoids that would be in it too, of kind of a complete package that would be used to help with a lot of autoimmune conditions, helping reduce inflammation as well as to help with cancer. I mean, I 100% applaud the work of Rick Simpson for his information on that of getting that out there. I do think for most people, Activation of the cannabinoid receptors is a good thing if they're dealing with immune issues, inflammation, 
neurotransmitter problems, metabolism problems, even to increase mitochondrial function. I think it's all important. Is there any downside to it? I have coached a few people where they did CBD oil and they even did Rick Simpson oil and it stimulated their immune system too much. Hmm. And the THC itself can stress the adrenal glands. So people with cortisol regulation issues, as you see adrenal fatigue, it could be a problem with them using the THC, but the CBD oils, you know, the antimides, stuff like that, they don't necessarily have a problem with that. So I think a person needs to do a lot of their research and they need to read to figure out what's best for them, whether it's Rick Simpson oil or it's your standard cannabinoid oil to see if which one would work best for them. It's tough. There hasn't been enough research for cannabinoids yet that's been out to the public. Mm. Like I would never touch a synthetic version, the Marinol <laughs> version. But you couldn't pay me to take that. It's like you couldn't pay me to take the ethyl ester synthetic fish oil medication. I wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole. Smart. I've coached a few people, the kids who've had seizures, and I actually gave it to Abel too. You give them CBD oil at the bare minimum or Rick Simpson oil if it's legal. And it stops the glutamate excitability of the brain. It helps fix neurotransmission. It helps reduce inflammation within the brain. And you've probably seen the videos of people who have, what's the condition where a person cusses a lot? Tourette's. Tourette's, there you go. And you've seen the videos of them smoking marijuana. It's like clockwork. Their body stops seizing and they stop cussing and they stop fidgeting and they're just acting like they're normal people. Yeah. That's the power of the cabinoids being able to reduce glutamate excitability in the brain and reducing neuroinflammation, increasing hippocampal neuron function, and making it so that they're able to function. It's crazy how well this plant, there's so much medicinal benefit in it, and yet we treat it as the worst thing in the world. I mean, you have to think that's by design. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, here, drink some alcohol. It'll make you feel better whole bread and circuses type thing. But no, don't smoke marijuana. It'll make you ill. <laughs> and it has to be by design. I'm pretty sure you've had countless people, quoting Rick Simpson, just talk about the positives of cannabinoids, the positives of them being anamide, for example. There shouldn't be any known overdose or toxicity associated with anamide CBD. THC, there's a rare thing I think I touched on before called cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome, which THC seems to trigger it more than CBD oil, but CBD oil could too. But there's just so much medicinal benefit in this plant, but yet it's kept from us. It almost makes me want to look at nicotine from time to time of why they're trying to completely take it out. It's funny. They're going to allow you to smoke cigarettes still. I know it's a little bit off a tangent, but Greg, I still have to say it. They're going to allow you to smoke cigarettes now, but they're going to take the nicotine out. When nicotine does have some biological uses for it. I mean, it increases mitochondrial function. I mean, it increases neural function to a degree, even though it is a vasoconstrictor. It does have some benefits to it medicinally, but yet they're going to take that alkaloid out and instead you can still smoke cigarettes and get all the chemicals and the tar, the formaldehyde and everything else associated with arsenic, associated with the cigarette, but they're going to take the only thing that may have a little bit of benefit if used properly, the nicotine, they're going to take that out. <laughs> of course they are. I mean, we're told that's what gives people the addiction. And of course, you do want to be able to unchain yourself from that addiction. But that is an interesting side note. Yeah, everything seems to line up directly with making things worse for us. So I am not surprised. Man, I am just really glad to have gotten to know you. I'm really thankful that you've helped the allergy issue. And 
it's really fun to do these two-hour shows that are just completely different topics between the first and second. It's always nice to have a listener on, too, because they're just a little more tuned into the general vibe, and that's a beautiful thing. Of course, Fix Your Gut is the book and the website. Is there anything else to tell the people? Let them hear it, man. Yeah, just go visit my website. The Higher Side Code should still work, so if anybody's still listening to this episode, you should be able to get a free copy of the book. I don't know if it's going to be indefinitely, but this should be a while. And if anybody really truly needs it and doesn't have the money, don't hesitate to email me. I'll send you a free copy anyway. Just too kind. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for having me on again, Greg. I appreciate it. As always, keep trying to fight the good fight, my brother. Yeah, man. And uh, just for the sake of giving people all the details, there were a few people, I think, who had an issue with the code, but it's higher side in all caps? It's in all caps, yes. I do believe so. So just go to... John's website, go to the book checkout section and put in the promo code HIRESIDE in all caps, and you too can fix your gut. (laughs) Awesome. Well, I will be recommending you for a long time, man. I'm glad we know each other. Take care out there. You too, Greg. Whoa, people, the bold and triumphant return of the great John Brisson, my friend and yours, the fix your gut guy. I love him. Glad to have him back for another round so soon because I just think there was so much left on the table last time, especially in regards to health, that going back over it, I feel like we could really get into the details, which hopefully is what you were going for. We did get an Archon question in there too for good measure, don't forget. But I'm really just psyched to see such a reduction in my daily sinus issues. I feel like I had to celebrate it, but hopefully the stuff we got into has a wider application too. You don't have to have allergies or even a real problem to make some better food choices for the sake of the future. Of course, ones that are as easy as what we presented today makes it a no-brainer also. This A2 milk and sprouted bread change is so simple. Getting vitamin C and magnesium, same deal. In fact, I'm going to put the same links in the show notes that John gave to me, but you have to keep in mind, he gave me a lengthy survey first, and based on what he thought the causes might be for my problem, He offered up this particular protocol. So it is catered to me, but if your situation sounds similar, try it out maybe. Or you can always get a direct consultation with John. I also mentioned ButcherBox in the last wrap-up to the show I did with John, and that's not something me and him have ever talked about, or even a company that I've dug too deeply into other than the claims they make on their website, but I have been having a really good experience with them. I avoided giving out my promo code last time because I didn't want it to sound like an ad, but some people have asked me about Butcher's Box and they've used the code and it is a better deal for you and me, so I guess I should give it out. It's nothing special, it's just what they give to all their customers, but if you're trying to eat grass-fed meat or you're having a hard time eating at home, I've been able to sort of force myself by having this meat come in the mail. I get Butcher's Box, they send me high-quality grass-fed meat, and then I just have to buy my vegetables at the store, and it's pretty low-maintenance, and it's a good, simple way to eat cleaner. So check it out. Go to the show notes for my individual customer link. If you sign up, you're going to get two free filet mignon steaks and a free pack of bacon and 10% off. So I would say, what is that probably worth? 30 bucks. I guess I should give you that bonus if you're even thinking about looking at what they have to offer. Again, no pressure. doesn't really 
do much for me. They don't even know I'm advertising this, but it is just something that I think is appropriate for this show. And it helps, at least in the realm of diet for me, if it's even available in your area. I've tried some of those things like Blue Apron. I don't like that as much. I don't want you to send me all the ingredients for a meal that you decided that I'm going to eat. Maybe I don't like eggplant. Maybe I don't want bok choy tonight. And I don't know what I'm going to do with this plantain. (laughs) They send you all kinds of exotic stuff. I just want steaks, pork, chicken, and I'll eat my very simple meat and potatoes and vegetables meals. But a solid second round from John. And of course, you can get his book, Fix Your Gut, with that promo code HIGHERSIDE in all caps. But consider all the hardship that John has had on the journey, and please throw him a few bucks to say thanks. I hate that everything has to be about money, but I didn't build the Rockefeller Rothschild debt-based system of rules, so I'm sorry. But it is just good form. We pay for way less valuable information. I mean, what if I was able to actually restore hearing after 30 years with some exotic alternative therapy? I think that's asking a lot. I'll give it a shot. Man, am I skeptical of something that magical, but I wouldn't ever dismiss it outright, and I'll definitely try it. But it does seem like a pretty bold claim. Maybe I'll pursue one of the experts in that area for a future show. Of course, the second hour, just like last time, if you're a Plus member, is a completely different show. Last time, largely about right-wing think tanks and networks of influence that we don't hear talked about much, and this time it was a pivot towards child trafficking and some of these networks and groups and mechanisms that aren't talked about much. We got into some pretty unsavory stuff with the Kick Messenger app and KenCoin, child porn in the Bitcoin blockchain, if you saw that story, some businesses that might function similar to Comet Ping Pong. We got into the Finders cult and the possible Timothy Leary connection. The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and its sketchy board members. Pokemon Go, conspiracy media drama, Jeff Rents, Jim Fetzer, Jan Irvin, and more. <laughs> All for members of the Higher Side Chats Plus. And I was pretty careful to say allegedly as much as I could because not only is the alternative community getting hammered right now, but also you never want to put that suggestion out there and be wrong or we're not much better than the rest of them. And I'm not saying John is right or wrong, but we do these episodes a little differently than I typically do because John doesn't have a book out there on this type of thing. So I'm really just asking him to flesh out some bullet points he gave me on his journey of research. So I'm shooting from the hip a bit more than normal, but I've already learned that John can pretty much talk for two hours without me and still have to cut some stuff out. So of course, big thanks to him and yourself for listening. I hope you feel motivated to make some healthy choices and push back against the machine a bit. Sign up for Plus if you like what I do here. We're still banned from YouTube, but I have started to get things moving on BitChute and DTube, where you can also see my part of the 24-hour Comedy Central Facebook live stream that happened. I had a segment booked at 4 a.m. I was told to talk about paranormal, and when I actually got on the air, it ended up being ghosts specifically, which, you know, probably my least favorite topic under the paranormal umbrella, but hey, I made it work, so check it out. But like I was saying, the best place to get THC is the Plus system. More shows and an easy and secure way to get the show on your devices without some corporate intermediary. Actually, there's like four if you count Visa and PayPal and Samsung, but whatever. They're not banning conspiracy shows yet. So get in while the getting's good. 
The archive is always getting more valuable, and THC Plus is still just $5, thehiresideshotsplus.com. Two more shows coming out this month, and I think both are really good, and they're creative and diverse with guests who have really high-level knowledge on their respective fortes. But that's it for me. Hope you all had a good 420. Just a nice excuse to treat yourself and have a good time. I went to the Cannabis Cup in San Bernardino, and despite the drama over the legalities and the city council trying to make it overly difficult to have the event there, and half the vendors pulled out from fear, despite all that, it was great. Why do you need 20 booths giving out free dabs when you got 10? So much love to the masses, and I'll see you next time. I've done my part. Your move, Archon-controlled health destroyers, lab coat-clad co-opters, and corporate cabals of the medical machine. Your fucking move. Maybe you'll see, goddamn, this plan. No fan spraying on me. Cronies don't you know they control. the sun.